You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. My name is Nathan Gilmore, and I'm Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line today by Dr. David Grubbs. He's an Assistant Professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how you doing? I right. How about yourself? I'm hanging in, man. I, with our weird schedule, we are now in our final five days of class, so all of the grading that goes with that is on my desk. Excellent. Someone else who is on a normal academic schedule and therefore isn't in his last five days of class is Dr. Michael Farmer. Uh, He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, how are you? I'm good, Nathan. Good, good, good. Well, guys, uh, I actually looked at the uh, Sectarian Review this morning, so I know that their episode this week is on Superman Red Sun. Uh, This is the alternate history Superman where he lands not in Kansas, but somewhere in the Ukraine, I think, the Soviet Union at any rate. And then there was a, yeah, part two of the uh, Essential Oils Christian Feminist podcast. I can't remember if we announced that last week or not, but uh, since I didn't actually test the code on that one and it was a day late on account of my uh, negligence, I have that uh, very clearly in mind. (laughs) Pietist Schoolman is back. Yes, indeed. Talk about that, Michael. Woohoo! Yeah, I uh, believe that Chris Gertz is doing another season of that show. Uh, he has quit his job at Bethel and become uh, some sort of travel agent. And I believe the episodes are going to be about that. <laughs> Did he really leave Bethel? No. 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 Oh, right. okay, okay, okay. And see, Squ- I... My, Michael, I, I am fragile enough here at the end of the semester that I really did believe you. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. We're sorry, Chris. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, listeners, be sure to listen to uh, all of those great shows. Uh, we have a, an embarrassment of riches here at the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And today, uh, we're going to talk about something that uh, has been on my mind because of some research I've been doing and also... Uh, just because of conversations I've had. Uh, And that is the nature of the intellectual virtues and how they have to do with uh, colleges and Christian colleges in particular. We'll kind of work our way into the narrative of why I started thinking about it. But first, Michael, I know you and I have talked a little bit about the virtues in Plato. So start us off there. What do some of the earliest discourses on the nature and the catalog of virtues have to say about wisdom and intellectual virtues of other sorts well before you start talking about any kind of list of intellectual virtues you're going to have to start with the purpose of the intellect and the purpose of education 
Plato's answer to that question, what is education for, what is the intellect for, is to see the form of the good, uh, to move past becoming into being, to make it to unified knowledge. And I think ultimately, those are three ways of saying the same thing. Certainly, they're very closely related. So in order to understand his virtues, you have to understand that what he wants you to do is to get past the appearance of things into what they really are. And we need to look for the practices and habits that will allow us to do that. So in the second half of book four of the Republic, Socrates is looking at four virtues in the city, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. Initially, these are public virtues. So he's trying to figure out what the city should look like, what sorts of qualities a good citizen, a good leader should have. Uh, wisdom and courage belong to specific particular groups. Uh, so the wisdom belongs to the rulers of the city. Courage belongs to the military. Moderation has to do with harmonious relationships among different classes in the city. It's a matter of appropriate order. And justice means, rather controversially, that everyone does his job and doesn't want to be something they're not. Uh, we're not really here to talk about the politics of it, and that's fine, because he treats the city as a macrocosm of the individual soul. So these same four virtues apply in a kind of metaphorical way to the individual Wisdom ends up being the knowledge about how to rule yourself. Courage means being afraid of the right sorts of things. Moderation means a harmonious relationship among the parts of your soul. So like your intellect and your emotions and your will all work together. And then he has a weird definition of justice. Uh, he says, it isn't concerned with someone's doing his own externally, but with what is inside him, what is truly himself and his own. One who is just does not allow any part of himself to do the work of another part or to allow the various classes within him to meddle with each other. Uh, which, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, that is a definition of justice. I'm not sure it's one I can make sense of. Later in book seven, he is trying to figure out what the education of the rulers of the city should look like. So here, here it really is a direct, uh, a direct matter of intellectual virtues. And he gives a whole series of them. Stability, gracefulness, nobility, toughness. You have to have an interest in the subjects, memory, persistence, love of work. And then probably the most important is a drive toward truth. You have to want the goal of education. So you have to want to get past becoming to being. You have to want to see things as they really are. It's not about power or control or about anything practical. He's very clear in book seven of the Republic that when you try to make practical uh, justifications for education, you're behaving foolishly. Um, so that's a list of virtues. He also deals with the subject in his dialogue Protagoras, which is all about education. And in particular, it's about the education of virtue. So it's about whether or not you can treat, teach virtue. Protagoras, who is a sophist, says that he can, in fact, educate young men in virtue. He can teach them how to be virtuous. Socrates ends up suggesting that what we think of as being separate virtues are actually just a single virtues that are all these aspects of the same thing. And he brings up the four virtues from Republic, uh, wisdom, courage, moderation, and justice. And then he adds holiness to that. So there's five. And he says ultimately that knowledge and virtue are the same thing. All, all of these things are just aspects of knowledge. Wisdom, courage, moderation, justice, and holiness are just like forms of knowledge. Um, 
so virtue requires knowledge, virtue is knowledge, and then virtue leads to knowledge. And we're back to that unified vision that all of Platonic education is supposedly aiming at to begin with. I just went through a lot of material, read it quickly. Did I leave anything out? No, I think you hit uh, the parts that are going to be relevant to what we're doing here. I mean, just to kind of put a frame around all that, you know, all of this discourse assumes that certain minds are doing better than others. And I'm, I'm trying to be careful about how I phrase that. Uh, it's not in the sense that, you know, they should be accorded more protection under law or that they have, you know, uh, differing degrees of worthiness to continue existing or anything like that. But functionally, uh, certain minds, certain souls are doing things better than other souls are doing them. And uh, Michael's right. I mean, you know, this list of uh, virtues for Plato ultimately all become intellectual virtues. Courage becomes the intellectual ordering of fears and so on and so forth. So, uh, David, is there anything else in the platonic realm we want to talk about before we turn the corner? I appreciated that Michael um, set up the, that you, Michael, who I'm speaking to also, not like you're some third party who isn't here. No, I left the room um, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that uh, Michael connected the, the macrocosm of the city and the way the virtues are divided according to class or station, um, and then connected that into the microcosm of the individual because uh, sort of left by itself, um, if, if you just sort of stopped at the description of the good city, um, you might say only the rulers need wisdom, only the soldiers need courage, um, and everyone else needs to know how to stop griping and do their do their work. Um, you know, if if you if you leave it if you leave it with the macrocosm of of the of the polis of this, you know, rational polis he's imagining, um, then wisdom uh, doesn't become necessary for everyone. Only certain people need it. Uh, but once you've, uh, when, once you've made that move, then wisdom is for everyone and courage is for everyone and so forth. But they're only for um, everyone within their given station in society. So, um, you know, uh what are they irons is that the is that the third level of people in the republic they're not going to use wisdom in the same way that the rulers use it and in fact wisdom for the irons may involve knowing when to not worry about wisdom does that make sense it's it's knowing right, it's right. wisdom for them is ruling their passions so that they don't want to transgress their arena yeah no, I I, right. I get that. Oh, go ahead, David. Yeah, I I, I get that. It's just, it's just the when we read Republic, we're always in danger of this city of parable, which is always an imaginary construct, um, uh, dominating what is what I, what I think is the Plato's real moves, which are once once he's once he's read the analogy on the soul, if that makes sense, um. There's a way in which he wants the internal application to be real in a way that he doesn't seem motivated to bring about the reality of this of the imagined society, if that makes sense. All right. Well, David, uh, leaving aside the conversation about how to interpret the Republic for a moment, 
uh, Aristotle takes up this question of intellectual virtues the most systematically in the sixth book of Nicomachean Ethics. He mentions it other places, but let's focus our conversation there. What are the virtues there, and how do his accounts of those virtues differ from Plato's accounts? Well, he's in the way that he uh, sort of divides the the inner the inner person. Uh, we have uh, we have we have reason, and we have will, and we have uh, uh, which which will and desire seem together um, to be joined in this thing called appetition, um, and then we have sense, which is just you know the ways that we receive you know, kind of input from our environment, you know, sight, sound, and so forth. Uh, and the, the intellect is, uh, the intellect is supposed to uh, have the appetition or willing or desire subjected to it. So this, this intellectual process is, um, is something important to understand. And he says that there are several um, excellences uh, in the intellectual intellectual parts of the soul, which uh, let these faculties thereby uh, whereby the soul attains truth and affirmation or negation be assumed to be in number five: art, knowledge, practical wisdom, science, and intuition. And he does not include supposition or opinion because those can go wrong. So what's the difference between between these five? Uh, knowledge, uh, knowledge he defines as a state or mental faculty that is apt to demonstrate syllogistically. So knowledge is your ability to use um, sort of logical first principles to uh, to reason certainly about things. Knowledge for him is a, is a is a kind of certain thing because it is based on certain logical principles. Uh, art and uh, uh, art and practical wisdom are kind of related to one another. Um, one having to do with making, the other having to do with with doing. Um, art is a certain state of mind apt to make, conjoined with true wisdom, uh, with true reason, and you know art. Art is, uh, I, I guess we would call that something like creativity, um, but especially uh, within, uh, within the, the, the arts uh, as he understands them, you know, sculpture and things of that nature. Making things. Practical wisdom has to do with, 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 with doing in the sense of how do you do things better or worse, or in general, how do you do well as a human? Um, uh, wisdom is a state of mind, true, conjoined with reason, and apt to do, having for its object those things which are good or bad for man. That last point is actually uh, uh, important to him. Practical wisdom is is centered on human doings. All right, it's all about um, what what leads to to good good choice and right action, particularly. Um, in human relationships and human society, um, it, it's a, it's a fundamentally moral quality, but still uh, attached to it's a faculty of reason. Um, and for that reason, uh, there are degrees of excellence in art, but not in terms of practical wisdom. Um, 
Uh, I'm not entirely certain that I understand him on this point, um, but here he seems to be referring to practical wisdom, not just in doing things better or worse, but doing good things or bad things. Um, so here, here he's he's uh, kind of bringing the moral, uh, the moral significance of practical wisdom forward. The uh, let's see, what are we on? Science. Science is interesting because he calls it the most accurate of all knowledge. Because it, uh, the scientific man must not merely know the deductions from first principles, but be in possession of truth respecting first principles. So in some sense, um, science is self-conscious logical knowledge. Um, it's a knowledge that isn't just using sort of logical first principles and deducing rightly. It's also aware of how those principles work. It's a kind of... Um, uh, I guess theoretically aware uh, reasoning. And then uh, finally, where are we at? What's number five again? Intuition. It, yeah, intuition. And intuition is that by which we perceive the first principles, which seems to be something that is pre-rational. You just kind of detect them. Um, the, the intuition um, performs the function of taking in first principles, which are not themselves the result of reasoning from first principles. Um, I would imagine right. he probably has something in mind, things like um, the rule of identity or of non-contradiction. Um, you know, two and two is four um, is the kind of thing that um, you just sort of look at it and there it is. Um, or one is one. You just, like, like how do you get back behind that? Um, his his intuition is the way that we lay hold of the first principles um, from which we build the thing he calls knowledge, but science is able to look at the first principles and recognize them, name them, and observe how they work so as to use them most precisely in the generation of knowledge. Yeah, David, let me know what you think about this. I mean, I, I got the sense when he talks about intuition that he is talking about the same kind of phenomenon that Plato explains by reincarnation when he when he does the dialogue the meno it's this idea that certain mathematical and other kinds of you know sort of fixed truths seem to be available universally to human minds if you pose the right questions and yet you know we can't really trace a moment where somebody taught the person that first principle I think that makes sense um they they both seem to be ways of accounting for both of them though Plato um, is pretty typically resorting to a um, a myth or a parable that he may not necessarily want to be taken literally in order to explain it, whereas uh, Aristotle kind of provides a definition and then makes not really any attempt to, at, the, at least at this point in the game, doesn't make any attempt to account for from whence intuition arises it's it's just kind of there right it's account that it's an account that differentiates it from other kinds of mental activity but doesn't try to explain it right right in what ways does it lay hold on first principles Ooh, just does um you know perhaps in the same way that the faculties of sense lay hold on those those uh 
those things which are subject to the senses. It's just made for it. Anything that I'm not emitting uh, or haven't haven't emphasized sufficiently? No, nothing that jumps to my mind. I'll pass it off to Michael here in a second. But I, like I said with Plato, I mean, what I appreciate going on here is that in these early inquiries into how it is we distinguish, you know, powerful minds or especially capable minds from minds that don't have the same capacity. Uh, Aristotle, like Plato, but I mean, you know, as David noted, I mean, his emphases are very, very different, uh, identifies certain modes of excellence, right? Uh, so that, you know, the ability to do the syllogistic work of logic is distinct from the ability to do carpentry with exceptional skill, even though both of them stand as genuinely good states of mind or capacities right. of mind, I should call right. them. I, sh I shouldn't call them states. This yep. is Aristotle. He doesn't do states of mind, right? Um, so again, you know, what I'm interested in here is just the, the, the careful observation that goes into what Aristotle does. Michael, are there any points that uh, you'd want to bring up before we take a gigantic leap forward in time? No, I don't think so. Well, let's leap forward in time then. Uh, Michael, you know, you have named several times one of the core texts of American literature and really American culture as the autobiography, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Uh, to what extent does this famous table of virtues that Franklin lays down uh, blend the moral and the intellectual virtues? And whatever the answer to that is, what does Franklin have to say about intellectual virtues specifically? Well, his 13 virtues are as follows. Temperance, silence, order, resolution, frugality, industry, sincerity, justice, moderation, cleanliness, tranquility, chastity, and humility. Some of those are oddly defined. Chastity in particular is famously defined as rarely use venery except to health. Is that, or there's another one too. Uh, health and pre procreation. Yeah, rarely yeah. use venery except for those two things. It's a, <laughs> it's a very strange definition of chastity, but those are the virtues. None of them are really intellectual virtues as Aristotle would have figured them because none of them are really about knowledge. Um, Franklin, we have to remember, is a proto-pragmatist. The virtues for him are all about actions, even the ones that are about thinking the right things, resolution and tranquility. Even those are ultimately actions. It's, it's about doing the things you decided to do and not letting things affect you. So I, I don't know that I would call any of them intellectual virtues uh, full stop. It seems to me that Franklin has internalized the how in Aristotle and Plato, but that his virtues don't ultimately have any content beyond our actions. They're not a matter of knowing things. They're a matter of doing things. Does that, is that what you were looking for? Yeah, honestly, I mean, it was tranquility that I, when I looked at his table, I said, well, that seems to be something like Plato's notion of wisdom because it's, you know, kind of situating the given happening in a larger picture and therefore not taking it so seriously. But uh, I'm glad to hear you say that, I mean, it's hard to distinguish any particularly intellectual virtues there in Franklin's table. Yeah, I would say tranquility is probably the closest, but even... Yeah, I mean, may, maybe it is. It, it, it's also similar, I think, to Plato's virtue of stability. 
Yeah, that makes some good sense. That makes some good sense. So, well, and yeah, then also, I but mean, all the in, other ones are certainly externally focused. Every single one of them. I gotcha. That makes some good sense. Um, so, David, I mean, the character and the transformation of intellectual virtues is interesting as a substantial subject matter, to be sure. The reason that I'm interested in them is because I've been thinking about sort of the mission of, of Christian colleges. Uh, so, David, I want to hear from you about Houston Baptist, and then I want to hear Michael talk about Crown. To what extent, if at all, do the intellectual virtues play into the ways that our colleges present themselves publicly? Well, I poked uh, around in a few different places for that. Uh, and, you know, the most, the most obvious places to look are, you know, vision statements, mission statements, things like that. Um, in that section of HBU's website, there's a little section on a Christian liberal arts pr uh, program which speaks about um, the liberal arts in some fairly some fairly traditional ways. Uh, but there's a couple of sentences that I think are, are particularly interesting for the way they see the integration of faith and learning as itself creating a kind of intellectual virtue. Um, see how this strikes you. It says, the integration of faith and learning promotes students' synthesis of relationships between different fields of study while encouraging them to appreciate and experience God's truth. I mean, the, the way that it says this, and there are other, other parts of, of these documents that, that uh, sort of say similar things, it's that the integration of faith and learning uh, isn't isn't just to sort of say, and I have math, and how can I do math Christianly, and language arts, and how can I do them Christianly, and biology, and how can I do it Christianly? You know, w we typically think of that integration of faith and learning, at least, you know, I've often thought of it at the level of how do I do my discipline? Um, but the way, the way it's presented, at least in this particular section, of, of what a Christian liberal arts program is at HBU, it says it as that integration of faith and learning also makes possible a kind of synthesis across fields of study. It makes possible a larger and more universal view. Um, and that, that I see is, you know, I, I think that fits into our discussion of, of intellectual virtue. Another area that, that, that fits into it is uh, we have a, a vision statement called the Ten Pillars. It was kind of a, um, a a plan for sort of near future development. Um, it was implemented um, well se several years ago. Um, we're we're not quite to the end of the of the end of of the the, the Ten Pillars plan, uh, but we're working on it. Uh, and then we'll see we'll see uh, whether it needs tweaking. But one of the pillars is Pillar 7 called Bring Athens and Jerusalem Together. And that particular pillar uh, is, about, um, is about the, the faith, uh, the faith and uh, academic discipline integration. In particular, um, uh, one paragraph begins, Jerusalem has much to teach Athens. Uh, but also Athens brings much to Jerusalem. And so they're, 
they're interested in uh, the ways that that integration ends up um, not being a uh, simply a, a uh, with 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 our religious dogmas simply being a, a hobble on on our our academic pursuits, but that both of those um, interact with and enrich each other. Um, the other place that I could find intellectual virtues, frankly, is in our catalog statements um, defining academic integrity. Um, and there, it's much more, uh, I, I don't know, much, much more the way that, the way that you describe uh, Benjamin Franklin's virtues. It's much more of a, a, a list of things that you don't do because they constitute academic dishonesty. Um, the, the theory of that is something uh, really that is left up to the uh, instructor to fill out in class if they get around to doing so. And that's what I've got. What about you? Michael? Crown's mission statement is as follows. The mission of Crown College is to provide a biblically-based education for Christian leadership in the Christian Missionary Alliance, the church at large, and the world. I do not see anything related to intellectual virtue there. It is a terribly practical mission statement that, uh, that assumes that students will also be using their education practically. Likewise, we have a vision statement that says, it's not exactly a statement, it just says, Christians prepared to serve and influence the world. That, if anything, is less intellectually focused than the first one. We do have a statement of our three core values, which are Christ-centered, academic excellence, and globally connected. You will note that one of our intellectual virtues is not parallel structure. Uh... <laughs> I was, I, I, I was waiting for a laugh. I was muted. I'm sorry. Oh. I, 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 thought, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, both, both of us were laughing, Michael. We just forgot to unmute while we were doing so. But um, So each of us has a statement that goes along with it, which I think are probably worth looking at. Uh, the statement on Christ-centeredness talks about prayer, passion, and friendship. And it also says that every student takes a Bible class. Every semester they're there. I, I don't see intellectual virtue as such in that list. Maybe friendship. You could think about friendship as being an intellectual virtue. Maybe. Yeah, that, that, could... that's at the end of the Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah, and, and passion. I, I mean, it, it goes along with Plato's like wanting to learn. But it's passion and friendship directed not toward studies exactly. Do you, do you know what I mean? Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the statement on global connection says that Students, quote, gain valuable skills by learning and working with people from different cultures and with different values all around the world. It's framed pragmatically like everything else, but I do think there's some intellectual virtue implied there. The, the knowledge of other cultures and understanding of global difference, that, that stuff I think you could maybe kind of consider intellectual virtue, even though, again, it's framed pragmatically. It's, it's skills they're going to get, presumably skills, by the way, that will make them attractive to employers. Uh, the academic excellence statement says, quote, preparing students for a wide range of professional careers. That sort of preparation huh. could involve specialized knowledge of a field. Aristotle definitely counts specialized knowledge of a field as intellectual virtue, as David mentioned earlier. But the rest of the statement mostly talks about how great our faculty are, which is a clear and blatant lie. So, no, <laughs> not really. 
there's not really anything about knowledge in our materials, let alone about wisdom. It, it is deeply pragmatic. I did not realize, in fact, how pragmatic it was. Even the, even the uh, religious stuff seems pragmatic. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Bummer. Um, I'm going to uh, run through a few things with Emmanuel's, as, as the other two did. Uh, first of all, our mission statement is Emmanuel College is a Christ-centered liberal arts institution that strives to prepare students to become Christ-like disciples who integrate faith, learning, and living for effective careers, scholarship, and service. Uh, so again, you know, pretty uh, practically oriented. Uh, when we talk about the philosophy and core values, which is another part of our uh, catalog, which also appears on our website, uh, we do get the notion uh, repeatedly of intellectual, physical, and spiritual growth. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'd say that tangentially there's a, a notion there that the intellect can grow. There's not a specific naming of intellectual virtues there. When it does talk about the, the character of Christ-centered higher education, which is the phrase that our catalog uses, uh, once again, it's, it's very practically oriented. I mean, there's a reason that I had Michael uh, kind of rehearse what Benjamin Franklin is after, because I, I get a sense that uh, he is influential, perhaps in ways that I hadn't thought of before. But when I was reading Emmanuel's materials, I mean, it definitely pointed there. One interesting uh, departure from that is the, uh, the institutional assessment program that I administer. Uh, every year I have to collect a random sampling of student writing and then a team of assessors uh, ranks them on a scale uh, which then goes into a report that I produce for the administration and so on and so forth. It's not my favorite part of my job but one thing about it is that the competencies here uh, sound a little bit more uh, Aristotelian. We've got number one communicate effectively through writing and speaking. I mean, there's something rhetorical going on there. Number two, think critically to evaluate the quality or credibility of any subject under consideration. So at the very least, there is a kind of practical wisdom there. Uh, number three, develop global perspective uh, and sensitivity to people of varied cultural backgrounds, kind of like what Michael was talking about. And then number four, articulate a Christ-centered worldview within one's academic discipline towards contemporary issues. So once again, I mean, the, uh, the central notion that Plato and Aristotle are working with, and we didn't take a long stop at the medievals, but David, if you want to comment on that for a moment, you can. Um, you know, I mean, you still get a sense that the building of that intellectual virtue is still at the, at the core of what education is about there in the medieval liberal arts. And in fact, David, let, let's go ahead and uh, call that lateral. I mean, talk a little bit since my show notes egregiously neg neglected that. To what extent does the medieval tradition, you know, stand as a continuity with Plato and Aristotle? To what extent is a is it a departure in a Benjamin Franklin direction? Um, I th I think it's probably a lot more of of the former than the latter. Um even though a lot of things don't carry through like like famously most of aristotle um is uh is not accessible in western europe during during much of the middle ages um but it's not because they don't care about what they've got in fact they they value what they have and uh revere it pass it along attempt to implement it 
um, his logic, um, and even and even pseudo Aristotle stuff, stuff that was attributed to Aristotle, but he didn't actually write it. Um, Plato's also in the mix, um, but especially the 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 Plato that comes uh, filtered through later classical and also Christian Neoplatonism. Um, uh, Boethius also serves as kind of a route of the, the the broader liberal arts into into the later Middle Ages, um, and just you know, but because my my home base is is often the is is the early Middle Ages, not the later Middle Ages. Um, you know, I'll I'll probably lateral back to you, Nathan, if you want to say anything about Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but you know, my my homeboy, the Venerable Bede, uh, is. Ba is is a polymath he's he's voraciously interested in everything um he's writing history he's writing um uh he he's writing uh, accounts of chronology how what you know how do we divide and how do we reckon time um he's writing biblical uh exegesis um he's writing you know kind of local histories he's you know, he just has his fingers in, in, in a lot of different disciplinary pies and seems to be uh, interested in, you know, his, his notion of, of, being, of being a Christian doesn't mean the only thing he's interested in is, is the received dogmas. He's, he's, he's got other ideas that he's interested in developing as well. But they all unify. They all coordinate. And that's, that's the thing um, that I appreciate in um, HBU's sort of definition of a Christian liberal arts education, and in the in Pillar Seven, um, bringing together Athens and Jerusalem, is that you know it, it's it is a kind of articulated unifying vision um, that uh, that's expressed there, and I think that you see in someone someone like the Venerable Bede. I mean, obviously they don't develop all the arts in the same ways that we necessarily do today. Um, but there still is, uh, there still is some development. It's not as if they aren't interested in those things. Um, do you want to say something about, um, about Thomas and the development of universities later on? Well, not necessarily. I mean, I'm more interested in, in kind of parking on this question of intellectual virtue. I mean, in education right because i mean right. again right. i just wanted to get the broad picture here uh and what what it, i'll go ahead and you know narrate what brought me to these questions uh it's the fact that i have come over the years to do the work of telling my students why we study certain things especially in you know required core classes almost exclusively in terms of virtue ethics i i don't nearly as often as i used to go to the employers are looking for this. Uh, I often tell my students, especially in, like I said, literature and, and writing classes, but also in the, you know, philosophy and theology I teach that, you know, what we are doing here isn't primarily uh, for the sake of, you know, applying it to a specific job situation, the way that you would, you know, press a signet ring into wax, but rather it is to get you to the point where you can undertake certain kinds of inquiry and pose certain kinds of questions that you wouldn't be able to pose if you hadn't spent the time and, you know, the discipline 
to develop, you know, these intellectual virtues. And it occurred to me that, you know, that is somewhat subversive in a very careerist and sometimes even consumerist academic, you know, environment. And then, you know, like I said, the, the, the question occurred to me, you know, to what extent is our institution actually subversive in that way? And to what extent am I actually flying even under our college's radar in that respect? Quite a bit, so, apparently. Yeah. Well, <laughs> say more, Michael. Well, I mean, at least I am. I mean, the, 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 almost all of the language on our website about our goals and mission and values, they're almost all pragmatic, even the spiritual stuff. So let me ask you this. I mean, just kind of as a follow-up, um, you know, do you think that that is a matter of necessity for the sake of drawing students to the place so that they can undertake this education? Or, I mean, is it more nefarious than that? Is it more duplicitous? Oh, you always ask me these questions that if people in charge heard me answering, I'd get fired. <laughs> I I think there is some necessity to it, but I also think there's a great deal of fear to it, which is if we promote an education for the sake of education, nobody's going to want to come here and we're all going to have to close down. And I mean, maybe they're right. I don't know. But I, 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 I think I would prefer to operate out of vision rather than fear. To say, you know, this is what education is for, and this is how we're going to frame it, and we'll find ways to make people interested in it. But in the meantime, we're not going to pretend this is all about getting people jobs. What do you think, David? I'm thinking. I'm thinking back to Benjamin Franklin, right? The 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 section of the autobiography where he does his, you know, he sketches out his, you know, amazing perfection project. Um, Right before that section, uh, he talks about how he was raised Presbyterian, but you know disagreed with various you know presby you know sort of defining Presbyterian dogmas, and so he didn't really go to any church. Um, Sunday became his day of study, uh, and he he sort of supported churches in a general kind of way because he thought religion helped make people live better, and so he would you know sort of donate to, you know, to build, um, you know, assembly houses and things like that for, for the various different sects. You know, he would, he would always chip in his money. He just would never go. Um, but he defines his, his religious principles and they, they boil basically down to there's a God who made us. Uh, we are responsible, uh, to him to do what's right. Uh, that responsibility chiefly concerns the way that we treat one another. And when we die, um, uh, the way that we've lived uh, will, uh, will lead to reward or to punishment. Franklin invents moralistic therapeutic deism. Right. Now, yes. my, Michael, help me out with this because my American literature is about 20 years in my past. He walks down uh, the street with the two great puffy rolls under his arms. <laughs> as, a, is, as a moral therapeutic deist is, is is the autobiography of ben franklin substantially earlier than uh thomas Paine's the age of reason i don't know when age of reason is uh franklin's autobiography okay, okay. Is 1790 okay so this is going to be roughly in the same period because that uh 
that vision of religion that David just articulated, I mean, it, it could have been a paraphrase of Tom Paine. Well, I mean, this is that's when it's that's when it's um, published. But he's he's actually talking about he's looking back at a, a part of his life um, when he was much younger and was kind of form, yes, that's formulating his me. ideas. Um, True enough. But the point that I was gonna that, that I was coming to there's there's a, a, a story that he tells about a Presbyterian minister who apparently has just been badgering him to come to church, and he goes to church and he hears the sermon and he thinks based on the text that read that this is going to be a sermon about practical moral instruction, and he's looking forward to it because that's what he thinks religion's for. And then instead, the church is the, the the sermon is about how you need to attend, attend Sunday worship, and you know that it's it various. It's it's basically a, a sermon encouraging Christian disciplines, not generic moral instruction. And he's incredibly disappointed. And and this is what sets up his his amazing pragmatic moral plan. Um, but. Like just sort of seeing that in the background and how American that is, really, to say that what's really important about a religion is its practical application in our life, and and sort of speculating about these intellectual dogmas and and you know uh, we use the word intellectualizing in evangelicalism almost exclusively after a hyphen preceded by the word over. Right, right. Um, and and that's kind of baked into the American civic religion cake from the beginning. Um, you know, evangelicals need to be shown that blind spot and taught how to rise above it. Because this is not, you know, this, this, exclu- this, this interest in the exclusively pragmatic is not actually a definitively christian thing it's 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 kind of the opposite and not well and i mean in my relatively limited experience with christian colleges how many of them really have a vision of reality that's all that different from the secular world other than um you know they don't like lgbt stuff and they're against abortion I mean, how how many of our schools are really offering a radically different vision of education? I felt I I feel like I had some of those professors in my undergraduate. Um, professors, right, but, but professors, acting, sure. Yeah, were they acting subversively, or you know, was there a clear line between the institutional self awareness and what the professors were doing? That's really hard for me to make that call. Uh, the place where I went to, the place where 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 I went to college was so small that there's almost no space between the institutional identity and the particular personalities of professors. Okay, that's fair enough. No, I, I can grant that. I can grant that. I mean, what would be interesting is to look at some of the selective liberal arts colleges and see if they're promoting that vision of education or if if their version of education is something different. But as, as far as I can tell from the Christian colleges I've interacted with, most of them, most of them have this practical end in mind. And then you, for the Christian ones, you, you add that, uh, you add that bit about faith learning integration, which 
I don't think really means anything. I've, I've been teaching, I've been teaching Mark Knowles, Jesus Christ in the life of the mind for several years now. And I, I still don't really understand what faith learning integration is. I think it's mostly, mostly a term we use to justify Christian higher education without really thinking it out. Um, I, I, I just think our vision of education is captive to the spirit of the age in a really disappointing, depressing way. We can, we can come yeah. back to this. Michael, our I meaning, I should say one more time, our meaning the, the institutions, not even, not the professors and probably not even the administrators because these institutional statements, I don't really know where they come from. We haven't redone ours since I've been here, um, but they're kind of coming from nowhere to nowhere. So I don't I don't know how much crown statement really represents. I'm sure it does not represent the faculty. I suspect it doesn't really represent our administrators. It's just like a thing the the school itself has belched out. It's interesting because our administration makes reference to it pretty regularly in public. All of that stuff, don't you think? Oh, this is so cynical. I'm sorry. This is this is the mood I'm in today. All of it's just marketing, right? I mean, when we talk about our core values, it's that's something we say to get people to come to the school. And if we happen to have them, that's good. But is it really a priority? Well, I, I, again, that's kind of the conversation I'm trying to stoke today, and I'm glad that we're having it because it's making me realize the questions that I haven't even posed yet right but michael i do want to tee you up uh because one word that you and i have had conversations about because we're both heidegger readers is uh curiosity so tell our listeners a little bit about that term because you know if you get uh professors together and try to generate a list of intellectual virtues curiosity is going to come up and yet you know for augustine and for heidegger this is not uh an uncomplicated positive term is it no it's not uh when we use it in contemporary parlance we tend to use it to signify interest in learning for its own sake uh which is a virtue for plato right forcing people to learn things they don't care about doesn't work he says they need to care about the subject so i mean if that's what we're using curiosity to mean uh 100 that is an intellectual virtue it is also sometimes used as a subject for critical or a synonym for critical thinking a term I don't like because I don't think it's terribly well-defined, but I think sometimes people use curiosity to mean wanting to see beyond the typical answers that are given. And that also seems like an intellectual virtue to me. I get the sense that often when we talk about curiosity in a positive way, it is scientifically flavored. I, I think of that. It doesn't have to be a science word, but I think it tends to be a science word. You imagine somebody like chasing a butterfly around with a magnifying glass or something. <laughs> no offense to our STEM listeners. Heidegger follows, as you say, Augustine, who uses it as an intellectual parallel to concupiscence. So in other words, curiosity is to the mind as lust is to the body. And the, the problem with curiosity for Augustine is that it involves knowledge for its own sake. He compares it to wanting to be entertained. So this is from the Confessions. From the same motive, men proceed to investigate the workings of nature, which is beyond our ken, things which it does no good to know and which men only want to know for the sake of knowing. And I, I think to understand this, this is 
this is fuel for a lot of internet atheist attacks on Christian culture for anti-intellectualism. But I, I think to understand it, you really have to understand the subject, the purpose of education. Why are we learning things? Augustine says that anything that doesn't lead us to God is faulty education. And this curiosity, which is just knowledge for its own sake, is not appropriately ordered toward God and thus not just useless, damaging, because it actually leads you away from God, right? So, yeah, um, Heidegger picks it up from there and he treats curiosity as a kind of novelty seeking. And in that sense, it's the opposite of understanding. You're not not really getting what things really are. You're just moving from one subject to another. And what you need to do instead is do this deep dive into understanding a topic, which happens in that Heidegger way where you're doing etymologies and making, uh, drawing out meaning from apparently simple unexamined phenomena. Uh, and, and it is important for Heidegger, by the way, that curiosity is, is typical of the sciences. So when, when he attacks curiosity, he is talking about a particularly scientific way of looking at the world. But I'm more interested in the Augustinian critique because it, it sounds terrible when you think about it. Oh, uh, I'm against knowledge for its own sake. But if you think that the purpose of education is to bring people to Christ or, you know, to point them toward Christ, then it would make total sense to be against knowledge for its own sake. Right, or anything else for its own sake. Yeah. 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 Because because in that in that view there is there isn't anything that is for its own sake. Right, yeah, you're misunderstanding. It's not real knowledge. Um and and that's it's, I mean he's not anti-intellectual. He's he just thinks appropriate intellectualism involves a particular order. Um and if you're not in that order, you're, you know, in danger of damning your soul to hell. Not because you're yep. looking at a butterfly through a magnifying glass, but because in doing so, you're interested solely in the butterfly and not in God. Yeah, it's it's sort of the I, I, I'm trying to think of maybe maybe kind of the link between the two. But, you know, the, the person who's read a cracked list and thinks they know something about a subject. Yeah, that would be Heideggerian curiosity for sure. The, cra the cracked yeah. list where, you know, each each thing is separated. And you're getting kind of two paragraphs and a little bit of snark. Right, right. Um, I was teaching, um, or not, not really even even teaching. I can't even claim to that. Um, discussing uh, the Phaedrus with uh, with a class today, and um, of of all the various things that um, that goes on in 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 that crazy dialogue, uh, w one of the uh, one of the idea, one of the ideas is is that a, a kind of true love um, is one that is that gets its orientation from a vision of what is truly good and beautiful, uh, and values the things that it sees in life by virtue of of their resemblance to that vision of the truly good and beautiful, um, and they seek to to move those things further and closer to that to that ideal. Um, I think Augustine, Augustine thinks about intellectual things in, in, in kind of that way, that all of this knowledge, it becomes sinful if you just sort of camp on the knowledge and love it for, it, for what it is. But what you need to do is put that knowledge on, on its proper trajectory. 
um, that knowledge off of its proper trajectory uh, is is going to be misused. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Plato's seeking that unified vision, right? And so is Augustine. He just thinks the only way to unify that vision is to put God in the center of it. Right, right. Probably not going to pacify the internet atheist, but... Um, <laughs> what it, will? It, yeah, well, it, it does mean that he's not anti-intellectual in the way that he's sometimes accused of being. Well, and, like, Augustine's the kind of guy that he'll rattle off, like, cracked list-style stuff in City of God, Um you remember the, I don't know if you remember the bit where he's talking about weird stuff people can do, like wiggling their ears, and he knows a guy that can like fart the alphabet or something. You mean the best passage in City of God? The best passage in City of God is exactly what I mean, but it's all... Does, does he actually know someone who can fart the alphabet? I, I Maybe he was farting tunes. I can't remember. A tune, a tune. That's what it was. <laughs> farting a tune. Man, I gotta yeah. read City of God. I know, right? But oh yeah, yeah. But it's all in service of this argument of what do all these facts together tell us about what what the human what human powers are possible? And it's you know it's 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 all as part of this discourse about what if there are what if there are, there are parts of our bodies that now are um, sort of outside of our volitional control. But what if what if they were under our control? And so all of this stuff that would have been just sort of cracked lists or like weird human trick stuff ends up becoming brought into this larger argument about what are what what human capacities and powers might be beyond our everyday experience. Um, so he likes right, this right. He, like he loves this weird stuff, but the weird stuff is part of this 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 bigger understanding of the human it's not just it's not just it's not just a weird stuff people do list right which is a profoundly philosophical way to approach reality well yeah <laughs> well listener i want to pause for a moment and apologize this discussion i realize is ranging all over the place it's very disjointed very unstructured and i take full responsibility for it because I'm not even sure what questions to ask about this, but Michael and David are helping me through this. And David, I want to make a, a, a an ankle-breaking turn here to the question <laughs> of the modern college's curriculum and how that relates to discourses of virtue. So, as you see things, David, do college majors with their specialization and sometimes their disdain for the lowly core classes do more to foster certain intellectual virtues or to inhi inhibit intellectual virtue or is this relationship a different sort of thing entirely they make you focusing on things within majors um, or within discipline specific or specialty specific studies uh, they do make you sharper within within that particular uh, within that particular area and so I want to I want to say a little I want to say something in praise of that um, the focus studies within a major, within a discipline, within a specialty do help move beyond, um, mo help this, the learner move beyond what might be called knowledge and toward what Aristotle calls science, which is not just sort of putting together piece, the pieces in a logical way, but having a, a greater 
understanding of the mechanics of the logic by which you assemble them um, in the different disciplines and specialties and, and whatever else you want to call it, um, we might call this the theorization of a discipline. And, and, and that I, I, see, I see as a good thing in which those who are practicing a discipline look back at their action and say, how do we, um, how do we pursue this study rightly? What are the, what are the, the appropriate sorts of ways to assemble, um, to assemble our data into arguments for interpretations? Um, what are the first principles that determine the logic of our discipline? Um, that, that is to move from knowledge to science, this, this higher thing. Um, and, you know, I, I see, I see that as a good thing. On the other hand, uh, it can lead to a parochialism that does not respect, um, the, the possibilities of other disciplines, um, and, and their, and their logics, um, within your own, um, Different disciplines are often good at particular kinds of insights. Uh, literature is often held up as something that can uh, help create uh, uh, and foster empathy, as you are uh, very often in fiction, uh, identifying with uh, the experience of characters who are very different from yourself. And that I see as, as a kind of intellectual virtue, um, an ability to um, imagine the experience of another. Uh, I, I, I see that as, as uh, not an emotional but an intellectual act. Um, not that emotions are uninvolved, but this it's a thinking thing. Uh, but if literature, uh, if literature's empathy isn't also uh, in conversation with philosophy, especially uh, in ethics, uh, or if it's uh, maybe not not in conversation with uh, uh, the so social sciences like, uh, like psychology, um, perhaps that exercise of empathy is not itself um, sufficiently understood. Um, and those other disciplines, which which also bump up against something like empathy and understanding human experience, like psychology, might also have some fruitful um, cross fertilization with literature, some fruitful cross fertilization with ethics, and so. This is forth. why you have a faculty lounge. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that's how um, that's how it happens in in my experience, um, but it's not baked into the curriculum, as it were. Um, it's a thing that you sort of have to get different different disciplines bumping up against each other and hoping that, you know, sparks come out of the contact. Um, it's, not, it's not necessarily built into the experience. One exception um, or example that's kind of in, in front of me uh, at the moment because it, you know, it, it, it became relevant to one of my advisees is that in our business programs, part of the business core is a business ethics class. And the business ethics class is taught uh, out of the philosophy department by philosophers. So 
yes, business has its has its own its own major with its own faculty, its own core, its own sort of central major courses. But in that one particular spot, um, the folks who step in and speak about ethics to business are not those who were primarily trained within the discipline of business. Uh, they are they are ethicists trained within the discipline of philosophy. Um, that that I think is an interesting kind of move, and maybe there might be other ways that we could build the cross fertilization of disciplines into into majors so that um, the parochialism uh, doesn't necessarily develop in the same way that is good stuff i, I I'll have to say that uh, every Christian college I've been affiliated with has had a management professor or an economist teaching business ethics so I like that move of moving it over to the philosophy department to be sure are there are there are there ways that y'all see in in uh, the relationships between majors and cores um, kinds of kinds of thinking or, or or discipline that in intellectually that just doesn't happen because of the way the ways we we structure these courses of study well i think if you if you have a certain number of required bible classes the the rest of your knowledge can kind of circle around it it can be a shared language that all the students and faculty members at the at the college speak and and that can be very helpful i'm not sure how often that actually happens. Um, our students have 24 hours of Bible classes, and still they don't seem terribly theologically literate to me for the most part. But at least in theory, I think you could use that kind of universal requirement to carve out a language to speak. Right. And uh, unfortunately, the mentality of our students that for the most part, I mean, the faculty tends to resist, although... I'm certainly aware of moments where this slips, uh, is to regard those required Bible classes as basically, you know, uh, boxes to check before you get onto your real education, which is uh. your specialized major education. Do you think that might be because the school is advertised to them as a way for them to get a job? Very well could be. Very well could be. It's also, I think, a function of, and again, this is our, our school in particular, but uh, because we've got so many required hours, but relatively few full-time ministry profs, a lot of those classes get taught by local preachers who come in and teach one class and then go back to their, their congregations. So there's not a, a strong sense that what they do in their Bible classes is connected, even on a faculty level, to what they do in their major classes. Hmm. Yeah. I, I that see. is not the case for us. We have, our Bible and theology faculty is the largest on campus, and they're all good. All right, all right, fair enough. But the students, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to have one of them in here to talk about it, one of the faculty members, because I, I, I don't think the students see theology as a common language, and maybe that's because the rest of us aren't speaking it enough, or maybe it's because our, our B&T faculty aren't suggesting that it could be I, I don't know i don't know what the disconnect there is but i see at least in theory theology as being a common language we could all speak and it seems like augustine would probably appreciate that 
Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. It is, but that's hardcore. I mean, that's hardcore secular three moral therapeutic deism stuff. You know, if I can kind of cross my tailor with my Christian Smith. Um, I mean, it, 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 that is such a hard move against everything our culture wires into our default modes about thinking what the relationship between faith and everything else in life is. Um, that unless it's explicit and constant and gruelingly intentional, I, I, that just, it's, it's a very, very, very difficult thing to fight for, to say why, why yes, your, your faith actually really does have something to do with everything else. It isn't mainly about this personal choice, um, that's, that's kind of expressive of your individual you know, self in the same way that your tastes in food and clothes are, um, you know, or, or, or whatever else, even, even, even very devout young people, I think today, uh, have, have a lot of that same sense that there are some parts of life that their religion doesn't natu- doesn't naturally mesh with. And that's not. But this is another reason why we're doing them a disservice to sell our colleges as job training, because that just suggests that you come here as a consumerist choice so that you can go on and make enough money to make more consumerist choices. So, of course, they're going to see it as a series of hoops to jump through or a series of choices to make that don't have anything to do with each other. Right. Though it's yeah, it, it's kind of a difficult thing, because how do you get someone to say, Come enjoy the life of of the mind attuned with 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 God as we you know pursue this you know this sense of communal Aristotelian friendship as we make all of our our minds and hearts better attuned with like like nobody speaks that language today. You have well, to maybe one of our one of, maybe one of our marketers can do that instead of. Uh... Oh, I, I don't. I can't think of something funny that a marketer would do instead. I, I think plastering you, our name yeah. on the side of a bounce house. I think you kind of have to evangelize them in that after they're there, and also give them the thing that you sold them on, <laughs> but also convert them to something bigger and higher and wiser. I don't know that you can you can give them the thing you sold them on and what we're talking about. I really don't. And I, I think I think Plato's attack on pragmatism in education, pragmatist uh, defenses of education. I think that's really important that that this is, you you can't serve two masters in some ways. And and you can kind of half do each of them. Um, But ultimately, I think if if we sell our education as primarily practical, they're always going to have an eye on the door. Yeah. Well, at any rate, guys, we are at this point well over an hour. And again, listeners, uh, what you've heard today is the the product of my inability even to formulate these questions. So I'm glad we've done it. <laughs> uh, so here at the end, I'd like to end with a, a bit of an open-ended around the horn bit. Uh, Michael, I'll, I'll give you the microphone first and uh, feel free to offer a final statement, a reading recommendation, another question that occurs to you or whatever else as we wrap things up here. Uh, I'm going to repeat a question I've brought up several times. What is education for? 
If we don't answer that question, we can't possibly talk about what intellectual virtue is. And I think the things I've been complaining about um, mostly stem from a failure to really think about what education is for. All of this stuff is always going to be goals-based. Virtues are goals-based. Virtues are what helps us to live the good life. Intellectual virtues help us to live the good life of the mind. The good life is based on human telos. You have to figure out what we're supposed to be, and then you got to figure out which practices help us to get there. And before before you've done that, there's really no sense in talking about it, which is, I think, our frustration um, with the with the educational trends we've been talking about the last half hour or so. Don't let me David, speak for you, David. What do we, what do you got? Not a well a reading recommendation, uh, but also a listening recommendation. Um, I I've I've gone back to um, dip back into uh, Richard Weaver's Languages Sermonic. Um, and it, it's actually been really, really good for me. Um, you know, when, whenever I start to get sort of cynical about um, the most pragmatic classes that I teach, the ones about writing, um, I like to kind of go back and, uh, like you said, Michael, um, uh, reorient the teleology of the most practical thing that I do, if that makes sense. Um, so we, we did, we did an episode, uh, three episodes a while back on, uh, Weaver's language and sermonic and, uh, well also the book is there so you can read that too. But, uh, I, I would, I would point, I would point to that as a good work for, um, trying to situate, um, the the discipline and often the most sort of boots on the ground liberal arts core you know employers are going to want you to know how to write good level stuff within a teleology of of intellectual excellence that actually points beyond um the immediate and the practical I think the question that I spend the most time exploring with my students, and I often have to drag them kicking and screaming into it, is what particularities of this enterprise we're doing, whether it be a rhetoric class in freshman comp, whether it be a literature class, whether it be a philosophy class, what is it about this discipline, this course of study, this formation, what is it about this that's going to make you a better servant to your neighbor when you're done with this. Uh, mm. And what I enjoy about that is that even though that's not, as we've discussed today, uh, the primary focus of, you know, the, uh, you know, the official, I can't even think of the word now, the marketing, right? Uh, nonetheless, students seem to have, at the very least, a, and, and a pre-articulate sense that, that, that that's what they should be doing with their education. So I guess my sense of optimism, and once again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just unapologetically be the optimist of this trio, is that when, when you present this vision to students, there are certainly some who are going to fight you, and certainly I've had a couple this semester in particular who have tried to break my spirit on this, but then once I get out of the room with those two students and meet with my other 83 students, they're receptive to this. So I guess my word of encouragement, you know, both for those of you listeners who are in Christian education and for those of you who 
you know, are around Christian education. And of course, if you listen to the show, you are at least at, at, at one level related to Christian education, because that's what the three of us do. I want to put out there that I'm not speculating that perhaps people might be interested in this kind of discourse. I'm saying that empirically people have been interested in this discourse. The big question that continues to trouble me is precisely what we've been talking about this episode. What's the relationship between the official institutional self-presentation to people who are not yet students and then what we do once people are students? I don't have answers to that, uh, but by grab, it's a fascinating question. Uh, and that's where I kind of kind of leave it today. Uh, Michael, what are we talking about next week? Recently, evangelicalism lost a giant, Eugene Peterson. He probably best known for the the word, what is it, the message translation of the Bible? I apparently best believe that's the well message. Known. I love that Bible. We are going to be talking about a few interviews he did where he talks about the relationship between theology and art. Um, so that's what we're doing. Rock and roll. Well, listeners, uh, if you have anything that you want to ask us about this uh, rambling and unorganized conversation we just had, you can email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can also comment on the show notes for this episode at uh, christianhumanist.org. Uh, we always appreciate those of you who go to iTunes and leave those five-star reviews. The more of those we get, the more searches we appear in, and therefore the more friends we can have in this conversation. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. And in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.